0: Erica Kramer, welcome to Inside Out.
1: I'm so excited to be here with you, Billy. I love you. We are doing this.
0: Yes, we are finally (laughs) doing this. I just want to say I am so, so, so excited to finally have our conversation here on the podcast. You yourself are a podcaster, and we're going to get into that. But before we do, I want to talk about your childhood. You grew up in a fatherless home. You were in and out of foster care. You endured... Sexual, verbal, and physical abuse. And you lived in a scarcity mindset from the time you were a young person. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way in which your childhood influenced who you are today.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's so heavy when you read it back. It's like, oh, wow. It was my mother did such an amazing job, although she was a single mother who struggled with bipolar. And I only just recently realized because, you you know, you tell your story and you write and you start pulling things out. And I only just recently realized that I am such a determined person and a go-getter and a never give up kind of person because my mother, although it was difficult. She would physically abuse me because she would be ill and the police would come and take both of us away. I would go to a home and she would go to a mental hospital. And I didn't realize that my mom kept fighting for me, always fought for me. And as a kid, as a three or four year old, as a five year old, you're having a sleepover at a new house. I think I was always a people kind of kid. Like I was always in love with being with community and with people. So I just felt like it was a party at someone else's house. So I didn't know my mom was ill or my mom beat me or it wasn't traumatic for me as a child. And I know Dr. Wayne Dyer talks about being a foster kid and people go, how was that for you? He's like, it was awesome. As a kid, I didn't know. I had no idea until I grew up what was going on. So just seeing her come walk three hours to come and visit me at a home or continuously fight for me and through the government, to make sure that she could have me again. It was just interesting to see that now as a mom myself, you know, I've got two kids. So it was turbulent. I was the angry child. I used anger as a kid to really express how I was feeling. I didn't know that I had abandonment issues and self-love and worthiness issues, but I did feel like I was the kid no one loved. And I was the bad kid because I got in trouble all the time, all the time. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) My friends now are like, I can't imagine you being violent. I was like, I was violent. I was in trouble all the time. So I think that just going through that and then moving into my adolescence and being like, hey, you can't beat people up. Like that's not how you're allowed to act in the world. But not having those good role models, it just created this lack of who I am identity. And so it was troublesome. It was turbulent. And although I had a love in my heart and I was a good kid overall, I just didn't know how to cope with all the trauma and all of the turbulence, I guess, if you will. It created resilience and strength. And it created me being outspoken and speaking up for injustice. When I was sexually abused, I did tell my mother and I wasn't a kid that kept it. A lot of people keep it, which is unfortunate. We don't tell people we feel shame. And I spoke out. And so I feel like all of those things created this outspoken, caring, loving person that I am today, but I'm able to do the work I can do with empathy because of all of those air quotes, bad experiences. I needed to have them.
0: Okay. So there's a lot there and I want to go a little bit deeper in a few areas. So first of all, I want to talk about the angry Erica, but actually not first of all, I want to do that in a minute. Before we do, I want to talk about the five-year-old Erica, the take, you described the five-year-old Erica as hot headed, take no shit Erica. Mm. Tell me about that Erica.
1: She was in protection mode. Like she was in warrior protection mode. And I think that Having the police come into your home and assault your mother on the floor and arrest her. I was a kid that was like, what the hell's going on? I think I said a bad word. I'm pretty sure I did say a bad word to the police at five years old and I'm swearing and kicking. And so as a police officer, now there's a little kid that needs to be handcuffed. So now me and my mom, literally, I remember it like it was yesterday, Billy. We both were in the back of a police car with handcuffs on our hands and feet. And I was five years old. Mm. So to me, it was like, I felt like I had to fight. I felt like I had to defend. I felt like I had to defend my mother on the playground. Like she was the crazy woman. We lived on the corner. So everyone knew where we lived. My mom one day walked naked from our house all the way down to like the 7 Eleven. And that was probably like three miles. So the kids heard about it. There would be someone trying to make fun of her, do something. And I just used anger and fighting and physical kind of hitting in order to try to defend her. So there was a massive chip on my shoulder. There was, and instead of being in the quiet space, I moved into the more active, like active and anger space, which you know, anger's good, but not in the realm that I was kind of using it. I
0: mean, geez. I get it. The protection, yeah. it's instinctual. It probably just you felt a connection to your mother, even though, you know, as you've said, there was all those things. And I know you've built that relationship back, but the point being is that she's your mom. She is your mother. Mm. And at the end of the day, regardless of some of the things that She did. You still felt this duty, this obligation to protect her, even as a young kid. Okay, so flash forward two years. Now you're a seven-year-old. You go on vacation, and ultimately you get kidnapped. Mm. What did that experience do to you by your own father?
1: So that was hectic because I didn't know of my father. He left when I was two, so I couldn't remember him. And my mom would try to show me photos, and I remember scratching his face. And I, again, anger, like it, it all, all that comes back to me is like, man, Erica, little Erica was an angry kid. You know, it was a, that's not fair. And instead of falling into the victim space, I just got angry. Well, you know what, now that I'm saying this, she wasn't angry, but when she got sick, like mentally unwell, she would physically abuse me. So maybe now that we're just working this out right now together, Billy, maybe seeing that it caused me to go, Oh, that's how you deal with your anger. You hit people or you your frustration is physical that's what it is. There we go. Mm. So that's where it came from. So at seven years old, my mom had a boyfriend and he was like the only father figure that I ever had in my life. Lovely man. We went to Puerto Rico on a holiday and I didn't know at the time, but she didn't take enough of medication. And my mom back then would, it's manic depression. So the younger she was in her thirties, she would get manic. And it was literally like paranoia, crazy, like crazy behavior. And the older she got, she would get depressed. So she would barely have any energy to move. Mm. So she didn't have enough medication. After three days, she would go off. Like three days is how long I would be able to know that, okay, this is day two. She's going to lose it. So we're in Puerto Rico and they got into an argument. And my mom put me into a car with her. It was the rental car that we had. And we were in this area, Carolina, which has a lot of hills. And I'd never been to Puerto Rico. I don't remember going. I was like two when I went. And my mom wasn't familiar with it either in this area. And it was raining. and It was dark. And she's like, let's go. So I'm like, okay, I'm getting in the car, put my seatbelt on. I'm in the front, seven years old. And my mom is driving like crazy. And in her head, there's a man or men chasing her. They're going to rape her. And I think that her life was sexually abusive. I think she got abused by her family. So When she would get sick, her subconscious or her go-to was, there's a man that's going to hurt me. So she was running away from someone, but no one was chasing us, Billy. So we're driving, it's raining, it's terrible, and we smash into this big tree. We flip the car three times, the car flips, and we ended up upside down and she gets me out of the car. It was crazy. We look past the tree and there was this, like a cliff with like a river, like, thank goodness for that tree. And it was a massive uh, tree that was huge. We would have been gone then and there. And so,
0: wow,
1: yeah, it's just, it was crazy. So that happens and she freaks out. And instead of getting help, she starts walking for three days. We just walked. We walked day. We walked at night. Our shoes broke. We slept on couches. We slept in someone's car. Like it was just a hectic experience. And I think that my dad for 20 years, I believe that he kidnapped me. He found out about it. The police took my mom, family took us in and he came and got me. And I was with him for a year. I had a reunion with him recently and he said, I came to save you. Like you're my daughter and I heard about what happened and I came to save you from your mom. And I'm like, I mean, it blew mm. my mind because 20 years I believed that he stole me from my mother. We both believe that. And to hear his perspective was just like, oh, wow. Like it was mind blowing. Well, it's, it's
0: really fascinating the, the perspective that we have as a child and how that can change as we get more information yeah. as we understand ourselves and all of the nuances i mean i grew up with my sister had a number of issues that arose throughout her life she had her first kid at 16 yeah. and it was super hard drug addiction abuse child welfare coming taking the kids from her and at one point this is crazy my own nephew accused me Of child abuse. I was still a kid myself. I'm much younger than my sister. But he had this association. Anyhow.
1: Yeah.
0: It's just like we, the stories that we formulate, they're sometimes, they're not always based on complete reality.
1: Yeah. And your memory goes. Like, you know, every time my mom would come to visit me in Australia, I'd be like, Mom, what happened? What actually happened? And she's telling me stories. And I, no offense, but I don't fully feel like she remembers you know, and mm. then I'm like, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. So we record. I've, I've got videos of us talking about these things. So I just want to remember. I'm like, this is content. We need to remember this like mm. crazy stuff that uh, honestly, now my life now, when I look at it, I'm like, it's so boring and normal and regular and happy and amazing. And like, that was so crazy that I even go, holy crap, was that did I live? Does that happen? Like, it's like a movie to me and I lived it. So it's like, <laughs> I can't imagine how it sounds.
0: Anybody listening like, what the hell? Yeah, we'll get to the boring part of your life. We're not quite there yet. Let's now go into high school. Yeah. You've described that you basically have a permanent seat in the (laughs) detention room. (laughs) As I said, you're that angry Erica, Mm -hmm. angry Erica with a chip on your shoulder. Tell me about that person, about that Erica. What was your life like in high school?
1: So in high school, I think I tried to be everyone. Like I tried to be the preppy girl. I tried to be the emo. I tried to be the gangster girl. I tried to like, I was trying to find out who I was. And so I literally Mm. dressed in every genre and every culture, like rocker, headbanger. I mean, I was everything. And it fulfilled my Gemini desires because I'm a Gemini. So (laughs) I was like, this is awesome. You
0: tried it all.
1: I really did, Billy. I just, I didn't know who I was supposed to be. You know, I definitely felt flawed, and like who I was wasn't right, and it wasn't good, and it was something wrong. So I'm like, well, maybe I need to be like those girls or like these people. So high school was really tricky for us in America. We go to middle school, so grade six to nine, and then we go to high school ten to twelve, or not not. So what is it? Sorry, it's six to middle school. What do we do in America? Middle school. Yeah.
0: So it it has changed even since when I I was like seventh, eighth, and ninth, yeah, and then it became it. six. 6th, 7th, 8th and then and then high school's 9 through 12 but it depends okay, on the so on the location it, I think. It yeah.
1: probably happened in middle school. I was like an angry kid. I would like bump into girls on purpose to beat them up and fight with them and pick on certain girls. I wouldn't fight with the big scary girls. So I was, you know, <laughs> seriously, I was like clearly I was trying to pick fights with who I felt was weak and who I could dominate because I felt dominated my whole life. And then we came into high school where I just was like maybe change the strategy. Let's be a little bit nicer. I think what I did in middle school followed me to high school. And then I paid for it in high school. <laughs> Cause even though
0: oh, yeah, I okay. like karma
1: came to like hit me up in high school, like it was like, Hey, I heard you were being not nice in middle school. Let's pay for it now. Cause I was being nice. I was changing my, my ways. I was, dressing more girly. Cause I dressed like a boy, like size 40 waist pants in middle school. Like, mm, okay. And I was, I relate. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I was like my jaw. I was, I had a big, old, yeah. big old jean, yeah. like
0: <laughs> crazy big bagging, bagging. Yeah.
1: Looping the, the belt around the pants like 14 times. And I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, I'm going to be a gangster and bandanas on my head, like Tupac, like the whole thing. Right. And so in high school I went in, like tight clothes. That's when girls get boobs and a bit of bum and you start like, sh- you know, your puberty kicks in, So I went full, totally different, like girly. And I just I still got into fights with people and I would just be physical and I would be horrible. Like I would be like, I'm going to make you bleed. Like if you do mess with me, you're going to be bleeding. And like that's why my friends now are like, can't imagine that you. But that was for real. That was me. I would get my teachers would knock on the door and be like, I had a guy. Um, Mr. Walsh, he's amazing. He would knock on my door and be like, you need to come to school. And I'm like, I'm not going to school. Mm. And he's like, come on, Erica, like, let's go like a social worker almost for school. I was in the special programs at school, like the bad kid programs. Like, and I think that they knew my turbulence at home because at 16, my mom went again into the, fo- uh, into the hospital system. And I was like, I'm not doing it. Like, I'm going to stay home and I'm going to be alone. And I'm going to tell the department of social services that I've got an 18 year old cousin, my cousin pretended she lived with me. And I just was like, I'm not doing it. Like I'm 16. By that point, Billy, I felt like I was 27. Because I had already paid my mom's bills done money orders, like done grocery shopping, like I was a grown up. So it's like, I'm not doing this again, you know, and I think I got my shit together at 16. I was I didn't go to parties or do drugs. I wasn't that kid. I didn't have sex. I didn't do any of that. So I was crazy in the other way. But I wasn't the typical like, you go to the college part or the you know high school parties and you're doing drugs and having different partners. And do, I wasn't doing any of that. I was really grown up in my head as to how I acted and the responsibilities that I had to have. But my anger was like, it followed me through. It was like, don't mess with me or my mother or any of this shit, or you're going to get your ass beat. And that's basically kind of what happened in high school. And I just, yeah, it was, it was hectic. I was lovely though. I was finding my, like, I want to be a nice person. I was trying to find my way and getting into nice groups of people, but the anger side would totally come out, but I was much more responsible. I was much more thinking about my future. Like, I don't want to live here. I don't want to live in America. I don't want to live in Massachusetts. I don't want to be in Framingham. I got to think about my future. I was just thinking about my escape route, you know, and that's Mm. when the military thing came in. But that, yeah, it was interesting. I felt like a 35 year old person when I was 16 years old.
0: Well, you'd lived a lot of life. And when Mm. you live a lot of life, you grow up quick. So it actually doesn't surprise me that that's what happened. You just alluded to it at 17, you joined the army and you have a 10 year stint in the army. Talk a little bit about what the army did in terms of an influence on you and the person that you've become.
1: Yeah. So the army came to our high school and I remember my girlfriends being like, you're not going to join the army. You're going to break a nail. Like if you do that. And like, I was not that girl. So, even just hearing that, I was like, oh, you think I'm this girly girl? This is hilarious. Like, the army is so up my alley. Let's do this. And so I ended up joining because I thought that at the time I had terrible grades, as you can imagine. I wasn't a good student already, never mind with all the distractions going on. So, I had really bad grades. My mom was poor. Like, all of my clothes came from subsidiaries and, and donations. And, you know, we had welfare, food stamps, all of that. So, I knew we didn't have the money for college, I didn't have the grades. And I thought, I should go to college. You know, I want to go for marketing. That's what I wanted to do, which is hilarious because I feel like that's what I do in my business. I just market my ass off. So, <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm going to go to school for marketing. Army will pay four years of any state college. And they would come to your school in the, in the lunch area, whatever that's cafeteria. So I signed up. I didn't tell my mom until I had to tell her. And I said, look, I need you to sign this because I'm going to go. And she was just like, she had a freak out. And I knew she was at 17, I knew she was going to get sick. It was so weird. Like, I knew it, but I still had to go. I was like, I have to go. I'm so sorry that you're going to get sick, but I have to go because this is my way out of this whole disaster that I feel like she didn't do to me, but I felt like this, you know? And so I joined the military. I joined a reserve. So it was like that one weekend a month thing. And so in high school, when everybody's going off to their you know, high school graduation getaway I was in boot camp that was my my high school getaway was boot camp so that was interesting wow
0: and so at some point you end up marrying your high school sweetheart yeah tell me about that what because he was in the army too correct yeah,
1: so in in high school we both decided he joined the marine corps which is like hardcore like the marines are like the Got you it. know the first in last out kind of I didn't want to do that. I was like, this is, the army is a little bit softer. So we didn't know. We were friends in high school. And then we got together, and I had no idea he had joined the Marines because also they came to the cafeteria. So their strategy gotcha. was okay. good. <laughs> so he joined the Marines. He was a year a little bit ahead of me. And then I had joined the army. So he went off to boot camp. I was still in school. And then when I finished school, I went to boot camp. And it was crazy because it was when 9 11 happened. So halfway through boot camp, 9 11 happened. And they put us in a room and they were like, You're all going to go to war. And we watched the towers hit. And we're like, is this like a drill? Is this a joke? It was so crazy because no one joined for war back then. You know, we just joined to go to college. So that was crazy. So when we got out of that, obviously him being in the Marines, he's like, I'm in California. I wanted to be stationed in California. So that was the goal always that we both move away to California. And before we left, he said, we're going to have to get married or do something. Because if I go to war, they're not going to tell my girlfriend and they're not going to tell my mom because she lives too far away. So I was like, I don't want to do this, but okay. So we secretly got married before he went away to Iraq and never told anyone until we had to.
0: So you're kind of had this secretive marriage. People don't know about it. And you're doing a lot, right? You Not only are in the army, you end up working full time. I know you're, at, you're in Miami. You're making music videos. Yeah. You're doing <laughs> modeling. I mean, what haven't you done, Erica? You've done so many things. <laughs> It was a a bit of a crazy time. And then, you know, you shared a story of when you were younger and you had an accident, but then you had another accident. You were seriously hurt. Mm. You basically broke your back. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it broke your spirit. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when we, when he came back from war, we moved to Florida and I ended up being full time in the military, like Monday to Friday, active duty. I was just reserve initially. And so we went out one Saturday night and, you know, it's so crazy because I do believe that in America we have a really bad drinking and driving habit where I don't see it in Australia at all. And so we went out one night, we drank a lot and we got into our car and I sat in the middle and he, I told everyone, put your seatbelts on, but I didn't look after me, which is something that's interesting. It's been, you know, a pattern. It's like, I don't look after myself. So We're driving, we go, what's the max, 160 miles per hour. We're at the max that this Fast and the Furious Mitsubishi Evolution car goes. There's no chip in the car. So it's at max speed. We smash into a ditch. We hit a tree, which pushed us into a van and then slammed us into like a convenience store. And that's when I was ejected. So I did fracture my back. I had to get like metal fusion to the bone was gone. Like I had to create a bone with metal. I smashed my left ankle and I just, I was in hospital for 30 days. And I'm just trying to learn how to walk. And honestly, like peeing without a catheter was like, that was a win. You know, it was like, it was mm. horrible. So th- I was 23. And this happened. And it kind of was a wake up call. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? I'm in the military. This guy that I'm married to is going to school and doing his dreams, and I'm not doing what I want. So in the army, I decided I'm going to go to hair school at night. So I was in the military Monday to Friday, uh, in Orlando, Florida, So in my whole get up in my boots. And then at night I went to hair school and a hair school, you had to wear all black and like have your hair done and have your makeup done. So already that was crazy to be like soldier and then pretty woman in black at night,
0: (laughs) scissors
1: and blow dryers. And then I decided to start modeling because I wanted to be an actress and I'm like, well, that's kind of close. It is not close. Like that is a whole nother world, but I didn't know. So I started modeling. I lived in Florida. So it was like too easy to go to Miami and do like Spanish music videos with like Pitbull and, Jada Kiss. And there was so much happening in that world, like magazine covers. And I really loved it. And I realized that it was my call for validation that I didn't get as a kid. Mm. I was getting validated through my, you know, supposed beauty or my body or, you know, the way I looked as opposed to validating myself for who I was and my intelligence. And I had no idea. So I was just doing this to get some attention and validation and a stamp of, hey, you're not broken. You're not damaged goods. You're actually a good person, which I felt like damaged goods. Mm. So yeah, that that was that was interesting doing that plus military plus. I was selling my calendars to the military people. So at least I had a good lead generator there.
0: <laughs> there you go. You're your early marketing. I was, yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> you got like a second chance, a second shot. You easily could have died. I mean, let's, sure. let's be real about this. You were ejected from a vehicle going 160, did you say? Yeah, like the max. Like, I think in America. The max. Yeah. So you're going,
1: I mean. It's, it's just, crazy. I don't know how I, we didn't.
0: Did you feel it though? Did you feel it at that time that you got a second lease on life? And do you think that was one of the motivating factors that totally. made you want to do all these things?
1: hundred percent. Like a million percent. It was like, when we went to see the cars at the body shop, the guy was like, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, you know, whoever was in this vehicle, I'm sure they passed. So. And we me and my mm-hmm. husband are like, we were in the vehicle and he's just like, like his mouth dropped. He's like, are you kidding me? Like there's no, all four tires off, all four doors off the roof off. Like everything in that car was gone. Like I, it was crazy. Like there's no way. So I, I feel like you're right. Like I was like, okay, this is my chance. Like I could have been paralyzed. I could have died. Like I need to really take shit seriously and do what I want. And so I did have this insatious, like, I'm going to climb the charts of modeling. I'm going to be on magazines. I'm going to be on videos. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the thing that I want to do, which I thought was being an actress or having fame. Again, a lack of validation. I thought I wanted to be famous, like J-Lo, you know, and it was, it gave me this fire. I was on my bedside table, healing, writing to photographers and trying to, like, I got myself into FHM. (laughs) And Maxim and like just Mm. on my phone, like on my computer, like trying to type things in. And yeah, I had this like, holy shit, wake up. It was like a wake up call. My first wake up call.
0: Yeah, a big wake up call. And then you had what you've described as your control alt delete moment. Mm. What was that moment?
1: So the following year after that accident, we had a party for Cinco de Mayo. It was like that 5th of May. There was an Oscar de la Hoya and Mayweather fight, which I'll never forget. It was a massive fight that we had at our house. It was a party. We had friends come to our house. From that point, we never drank and drove anymore. Obviously, we never didn't wear a seatbelt. We really learned our lesson. It was a year later almost. And we had this party and it was about midnight. And I'm like, listen, I got to go to my army one week in a month tomorrow. So I can't be late for the army formation. So I'm going to go to bed. Everybody have fun. We were at home. I go to sleep and I wake up in the morning and my husband wasn't there. And I'm looking around. I'm like, where's Giovanni? Where's Gio? Like, where is he? I see his friends on the couch. I'm like, have you guys seen him? Where is he? And it was this eerie feeling of like, where did he go? But also I have to go. I'm late. I'm going to be late to the military. And you don't mess around with that. So I'd looked at my phone and he had rang me at 120 and he hadn't left a voicemail or anything. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, guys, I got to go to work, but can you like wake up, have a lookout just see where he is? Maybe he's fell asleep in his car or down the road somewhere. And I went to work, told my army boss, who's like my mom. She was like my second mother. And she's like, OK, let's keep calling him. And it kept ringing his phone and it kept going to voicemail, which was a good sign. You know, I was like, OK, maybe he's asleep somewhere. It was 1145 in the morning and it started raining. And I don't know what it was about the rain and like the, the lack of communication with him and the worry. And I was just like, something is wrong. Like, where's my husband? And so we had been married at this point, five years together for seven years, high school sweetheart, 16 years old. And I ended up saying, I have to go find him. She's like, go, let me know how you go. We go to the house. I check my phone. I had calls from the hospital and the hospital had called me because the year before when I broke my back, I didn't have health insurance because I didn't think I needed it. Right. Like I was 20 years old. So I rang them and I'm like, listen, you guys rang me. I don't know if there's any information. I'm looking for my husband. I called prisons. I called everywhere. They're like, look, we can't give you any information over the phone. If you want to check, just come in. Very like casual. I'm like, cool, we'll go to the hospital. And I remember going to the hospital and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting in this waiting room where it's like the bad news room. And I'm like, I don't I don't want to sit here any longer. It felt like days, Billy. And finally, the double doors like swing open. And it was like slow motion. And I see the nurse and I see the, the man with a clipboard doctor come out and they're just like, I'm so sorry he didn't make it. And I'm like, I so don't comprehend what they're talking about because I don't even know why I'm there. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Like, I just kept saying, I don't understand. It was like a moment of insanity. I was just like, I don't understand mm. what you're saying. And they're like, you know, Giovanni Lopez, your husband didn't make it. We did everything we could. He didn't make it. And I'm just like, what? Like, I mean. I couldn't even show emotion, Billy. It was just, I was so shocked. I had never had anyone in my life die. I'd never been to a funeral, never saw death at all. And then, like, my husband had died in a car accident. It was a crazy moment. And it was the moment where just everything went to shit, numbed out for the next five years. And it was just, I almost couldn't cope because I had so much trauma in my childhood, so much loss, so much physical abuse, so much crazy stuff that then that happens. And I was like, I'm done. Like, I don't think I can do that. So I just had to, like, almost pretend that nothing ever happened in my life. That control delete came from that, that feeling of like, I'm out, like I'm done. I I, I can't do this. Not to commit suicide, but to be like, I can't deal with normal life. So I'm just going to numb out.
0: The amount of grief and trauma that you endured up until that point would stop anyone in their tracks. But then to add that, Mm. and I know that stands out, understandably so. As making everything else seem small, yeah. I, you've described it. Yeah, you, you, there's no words, there's no feeling, there's there's nothing that can describe the void that you had at that moment. I can only imagine, and I and I don't even want to imagine what that feels like. But you know, you'd been in foster care, your mother's bipolar, mm. you know, had abusive experiences, kidnapped, or some version of being kidnapped, a backbreaking injury where you're throwing, ejected from a car, going over hundred miles an hour, mm. all of these things collectively are, they're horrible. And then to have this happen, I could understand you had the the feeling that you had, the hopelessness, the giving, the wanting to give up. Mm. As you've described, the next five years were super hard. They were super challenging. So what was it at the end of the five years? What was it that helped you find this new version of yourself or the beginning of this new version of yourself where you were able to finally pick up the pieces and become the person you are today. Because if you're not a story of redemption and resiliency, (laughs) I don't know what is the fact that you are who you are today. I'm blown away. Thank you for sharing your story. So how did it evolve from there after those five years?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Billy. Thank you so much. It was, I think what happened was I, I tried to pretend like nothing happened and tried not to deal with it. And I think we all do this. We shove things away and we're like, not right now, not right now, not right now. And so because we don't deal with it, it kind of deals with us in other ways. So I would attract these people into my life, friends or, or or men, relationships that were just toxic. And I felt at this point like damaged goods, like messed up, like something's wrong with me. I I kind of felt like something is wrong with me. I got it heavily into drinking. I still drank and drove. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but I did, you know, I just didn't care anymore. I was like, whatever. So I didn't care. But then there was this, this other underlying success thing that was like, come on, we have to do something with this. So I was still modeling. I was doing a lot. I was doing a lot of videos and things, drinking, hanging out with the wrong people. And then I finished my hair school thing, my degree with hair, my cosmetology. And I got an opportunity to manage this franchise, this new franchise. And the owner was like, you're in the military. You've got leadership. I know you do. I want you to do this. And I had just graduated from school. So I'm new to this. And I've got 12 juniors who just graduated. And he's like, here are the keys. Here's the checkbook. Go run this prototype franchise. So it was kind of the best thing that ever happened to me for someone else to believe in me because I did not believe in myself at that point. And to see my mm. potential, you know, it was like, so then I went off to Utah, got training. I learned about managing and coaching and like how to manage teams. And I use that now still to this day, like that skill that I got from then. Went to a big conference in Las Vegas and I met a man in Las Vegas, as you do. Ladies, do you understand? It's like, oh, yeah, I'm in Las Vegas, you know, and I met this man who was from Australia. And I had always dated like my ghetto peeps, you know, my, my Latin men, my black men, my, you know, my, my, even the white guys that like baggy jeans that were from the hood, this guy's like skinny, tall, wearing tight clothes, has a crazy accent, total different to what I was into, not my type, I guess you would say, but I was intrigued, <laughs> you know, I was intrigued with his accent and how he saw the world. And anyway, we got into a relationship together. He lived in Sydney, Australia. And we just kept Skype back and forth. Back when Skype was a thing, you know, we kept chatting and it was a great distraction to what was going on in my life. That's really what it was. Cause I had terrible relationships with men throughout that time. So I'm talking to him and he's like, I'm going to come to visit you. So he came to visit me and he's like, why don't you come in to Australia? And I'm like, you know what? Why not? Like I have nothing to lose. Like I have nothing here. So I really believe that if I moved away to another country, That everything would just dissolve, you know, be like a fresh star. And like, I don't have to deal with my stuff. My stuff's not going to follow me across the Pacific Ocean, but it totally did. And so I ended up coming to Australia. That relationship didn't work. He was not a nice man. It worked out that he was really narcissistic and condemning to my past and everything I'd been through. I met another man who was basically the same guy, but a different face. So I ended up in Melbourne for the second man. And I was at the gym. With my personal trainer, Hamish, who was a really dear friend and a beautiful man, but he was a personal trainer. He wasn't, there was no chemistry there. And I remember crying on my birthday, being like, this guy broke up with me and I'm in another country. I literally moved to Australia for this man. And then I moved to Melbourne for another man. Like, if I'm not the biggest loser in the world, I don't know who is. And he was like, it's okay. These things happen. You know, let me connect you to some of my friends. You know, Melbourne's awesome. You're going to love it here. Don't worry. So Hamish, my personal trainer, became like a friend and he became really Mm -hmm. loving and he was the most gentle man. I'd never met a man that was like a straight man that was as soft and gentle and sweet as he was understanding. And so I started this really beautiful friendship with my personal trainer because that was my only friend in Melbourne. He was the only person I told my whole story to, Billy, like my whole story, like the story you know and even more detail. He just went, wow, you're amazing. You're so strong. You're so resilient. And I'm like, what? Like, you don't think something's wrong with me or that I'm broken or weird or damaged? He's like, no, you kidding me? Like, that's your story is amazing. And your modeling photos are amazing. And everything I did was awesome to, in his eyes. And he told me about mm. a coach that he was seeing and about the work that he did and how it's helped him. So he didn't shove it in my face or say, you need to read this book. He just went gentle invitation for a way through, not a way out, a way through. You have to do the work, but it's been amazing for me. And that was the moment I was like, cool, let's do this. And I had my first session with a coach and we went to the big thing, which was my husband's death that I had never dealt with. And from that moment, that day, I was like 12 months later, I was a completely different person. We had invested 30K plus on coaches, healers, not even healers. I was more into like coaches and mentors and retreats. And then I got into business mentorship and it just eight years later, Here I am, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm so obsessed with this, with the possibility of healing such a, air quotes, messed up life. Like I was so messed up yet I was able to take responsibility and shift it and change it and, and learn from it and use it to make me strong as opposed to let it victimize me as the poor me, woe is me person that I was being. Mm. Yeah.
0: Man. Hamish. I know. Hamish comes into the picture. And so... Clearly, the influence that he had at the time, you know, when somebody believes in you, mm-hmm. when somebody does what you've described and they, they see your story and they don't think, oh, you're broken. Oh, you're wounded. Oh, you have all this trauma in your life. Therefore, somehow you're not worthy or you don't deserve to, to be and have the life that you're capable of having. He didn't see any of that. He saw the brilliance of your resiliency. Yeah, The tragic beauty of your life, despite all of the odd obstacles that were in your way. And I know today, he's your husband. Yes. And that's a beautiful thing. So let's talk about mentors and teachers. There's so many that I'm sure have touched you, but I know somebody that's very important to you is Wayne Dyer. Mm. And you said that you wish you could have met him. Yeah. If you met Wayne Dyer, what would you say to him?
1: He's so emotional. <laughs> it's like... I felt like I met him in my dreams or I feel like our spirits met.
0: Mm. Yeah, I really do. It's possible, right?
1: Yeah. And he's got the similar story. Like he was a foster kid. He joined the military. He hated I know. I know. When
0: you said all that, I was like, wow. Was
1: so weird. Yeah. 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 I feel like what he did for me is what I aspire to do for the women that I serve or the men that come across. Some men listen to the podcast. He really showed what was possible. He was the example of what was possible when you decide to get into the driver seat of your car of your life like when you decide to take responsibility for all of it the good the bad the ugly when you decide to take it and go okay thank you how do I work with this and transmute this and how can I turn this into power and how can I shift my life with this so he to me was the example of that he was the first one who changed my anger And that was big, because I was angry. I was really angry. I was still angry. And then when I would be as a grown up, the anger would turn into drinking. And the drinking Erica, like my husband was like, I don't even know who that was like, poor Hamish, like I I wasn't good when I first met him. And he was very patient, because I was really I was still broken, hurt and trying to figure it out. And he was really patient with me. And I would drink a lot and like get really angry. And so Wayne Dyer's work just helped me to realize that you know, I, I needed to work with my anger. I needed to express it in a better way. I didn't have to be so angry that it was my choice. All of that been the key lesson is that it's not my fault, but it's my responsibility. And now that I'm here, mm. what do I want to do with that? And I get to choose, do I have a shit life or have an awesome life? Is it an ugly, bad day? Or is it a fucking awesome day? Like, I get to choose that we all get to choose that. And just that was like, mind-blowing. And that's been the fabric that's been weaved into my whole life is that. And that's what made me be able to shift into this. But yeah, Wayne Dyer, God, he's next level. I'm
0: glad you used the word responsibility because that's exactly the word I was thinking Mm. of. Why is that word specifically so important to you? And and how would you define it? Because I know Wayne defines it and it really touched you in the way in which he defines it. So I think it would be valuable for you to share yeah. your interpretation of what Wy- of what Wayne taught you as it relates to the word responsibility.
1: Yeah, I think, well, how he defines it, and it's such a beautiful breakdown. I had to put it in the book. It's like, you know, responsibility, like an ability to respond, that you can respond so you can do something about it, as opposed to not my problem, not my fault. I have no power, can't take responsibility for that. Then that means... You can't change it. And if you can't change it, then you're expecting someone outside of you or the external world to change it. And you have no control. You have zero, we barely can control the way we think and the way we feel. We suck at that. So imagine me Mm -hmm. trying to change the way you see me or the world or my external world is out of my control. So it just taught me that if you can respond, if you have an ability to respond to something that you're not happy with, you have the power to shift it and change it. Like you have the power. And it was like, I have the power. I can do this. And that just makes me, that makes me feel empowered. That makes me feel like I have a next step and that I get to create like the life by design versus here's the book. You can't write your next chapter. It's already written for you. It's like, no, here's the pen, blank pages. You get to write it. What do you want it to say? Like you get to have that. And so. It just changed everything for me. That that one belief, that one thing was like, if that's true, watch out world, you know? And
0: uh, yeah. it was
1: painful, but it was good.
0: <laughs> what a massive unlock for you and for others. And I'm glad that you're able to pay it forward and help his legacy continue to live on. I mean, if you are unfamiliar with his work, check it out. He is definitely one of the primary... Uh, sources of so many people that are active today in the coaching and the development space, it's rooted in his teachings. Mm-hmm. And so one of those teachings, and I think this is something that you talk a lot about is this idea that most of us, a lot of us, they, we focus on and put energy into other people and the past things that we don't control. We don't necessarily control other people. We don't necessarily control the past. How can we avoid doing that? How can we avoid putting so much energy thinking about other people and thinking about the past?
1: I think that the first thing anyone can do ever is become aware. Like if you don't even know you're doing that and you're just now listening to Billy explain that and you're like, oh, yeah, actually, 99% of the day I'm thinking about the past or I'm worried about what other people are thinking or doing. If that's you right now, high five because you just got some awareness and we can't do anything without awareness. And people just disregard awareness. Like, okay, awareness. And now what? I'm like, I sat in awareness for two years, like two years, just being aware of what I was doing without being able to shift it and move in. And so I think number one is awareness. And number two, commit to doing something about what you've just learned about yourself. So if that's you, and most of your life is being controlled by the opinion of others or by your past then what can you decide to do? Can you decide to get a mentor? Can you decide to commit to healing your past or maybe going to those places that you didn't want to visit with someone you trust? Can you start identifying where in your life has this stopped you? Oh, I didn't go for that job. Oh, I didn't marry that person. Oh, I didn't fulfill that. Oh, that's, that's a lot of stuff that I haven't done because I've been worried about what my family or society will think of me. You know, if, even if you just find that, that's a beautiful place to start unraveling what's underneath that, which could be a whole set Mm. of beliefs that are not true, that you've been believing your whole life. And now you go, oh my God, what if that wasn't true? Like, what if that wasn't true? Just play with that on a piece of paper. What if all of this was a lie? How would my life look now? What does that mean for me? I just love to unravel things in my head on paper because then it's possibility on paper, you know, until you decide to do something about it. And it's a safe space for you to be able to explore thoughts and feelings and ideas and stories with no one to watch. No one needs to see it. You don't need to share it on Instagram, but just for you to witness through your own eye, your hand writing something and disassociating that that's not who you are. Like the thoughts in your head are not who you are. It's something you're thinking, but it's not who you are. Your past is not who you are. And so if you don't have the awareness and if you don't commit to getting things out on paper and letting yourself see what you're thinking and feeling, How can you ever do something about shifting it or changing it?
0: I love that you say it starts with awareness because I think it fundamentally, the more aware we are to your point, the more we can actually do something about it. So once we have that awareness, what next?
1: Yeah. Once you have that awareness, I think you decide, like, okay, cool. I'm aware that the life I've created for myself is because I thought I wasn't good enough. For example, I had an awareness of every bad relationship I'd gotten into. And it wasn't until the second guy in Melbourne that I had to look in the mirror and be like, okay, my life and all of the shit that happened. When I look in the mirror, the common denominator is me. Mm. Like that was a massive moment to go. It's not that guy. It's not that guy. It's not that thing. It's not that job. It's not my boss. Who's the common denominator here. You Erica. And it was like, damn, if it's me, if I'm the creator of my world and I am the attractor, not like spiritual manifesting. I mean, you attract the job, you attract the body, you attract the money. Like we have to take responsibility for what, how we attract as well. So when I got that, I was like, okay, if I attracted all of that, that's pretty powerful. It's not what I want. But then I have to be able to attract what I want. And I decided for myself to start watching people that were doing that. So Hamish was the only person I knew. He was doing that. So like Tony Robbins says, like success leaves clues, like model someone. So who in your life do you know, whether you know them or not, that's getting a result that you want? How did they do that? Check them out, Google them, research. I can guarantee you that most of the the people we look up to have paid money to a mentor or have read a book Mm -hmm. or have committed to the growth mindset where every day they get up, they meditate, they listen to podcasts, they surround themselves with good people. There are certain things that they do. And so if you replicate those things. If you go, I need to get my awareness up. I need to not hang out with assholes. I need to start eating better food. I need to move my body. I need to change my job because I'm not happy. I say like, take a comb and comb through your life. Where are the knots? Where are the knots? Oh, there's a knot in my bank account. Okay, let me move through that. What's the biggest knot? Because we avoid that big knot. And We're like, no, deal with that later. I'm like, no, no, deal with the big knot because I'm sure it'll unravel and detangle the rest of the shit that's going on. It's like my relationship, my marriage, my job. These are the big things. I mean, if that's not our joy and happiness, where we work, how, who we're married to, it's everything. And yet we decide not to work on that or talk about that because it's too hard. And I'm like, it's affecting your life. So that's what I would say. Model people, decide to work on yourself. You know, I'm a coach, so easy for me to say, but I think we shouldn't wait to work on ourselves when shit hits the fan. That's too late. Just decide to work on yourself, find a mentor, find someone so that you can continuously level up and you can continuously grow and innovate yourself.
0: What a great visual, right? Like get those tangles out, get the knots (laughs) out, but you got to got the, you have to have the comb, which is in a way is your awareness. Your awareness muscle is that comb. You don't know those knots exist if you don't take the time to comb through your life. I love that analogy. I actually haven't heard that before. There's so much here, Erica, and I'm excited to to dive into like the five C's of confidence and get into that whole world. Before we do, I wanna talk a little bit about this almost innate thing that so many of us have, which is this people pleasing side to us. Mm. We grow up wanting to please people. We live our lives wanting to please people, to live our lives for other people. But often that means that we're not serving ourselves, that we're not taking care of ourselves, that we're not doing things to help our own life journey. We're doing it for other people. So why do we do this? One. And then two, how do we avoid doing it? What's your suggestion?
1: Yeah, I, I feel like we do it because we we don't know any better. You know, we we get born into this culture. We get born into these, these customs that we should be kind. We should be nice. We should be polite. We should say thank you. You know, we shouldn't cry in public or we should be strong or whatever it is that our families say to us. You don't show emotion or, you know, you say thank you. You say please. Like, you know, I have kids and I'm like, I'm not going to tell my kid to hug his aunt. If he doesn't want to hug her, you don't have to hug her, buddy. You know, you get to decide. It's like, be nice. <laughs> you know, like, Be nice. Don't say that. Like, kids want to be real and they are the realest And we try to make them fit into this, like, be nice and be kind and be a people pleaser. And so I think that one of the things that we have to realize is that if you continuously are trying to please someone else, think about why we are trying to get people to like us. And so I say a lot to my clients and it pisses them off. But I'm like, if you're people pleasing, if you're saying yes, when you mean no, you're a manipulator and you're a liar. And they're like, what? No, I'm not. I'm like, yes, you are. Because you're manipulating. You're saying, I'll do this for you so you can like me. Or I'll say yes, but then you have to say yes to me so that people can like you. And it's like when you realize that you want to say no and that the kindest thing that you could do is say no, like the kindest thing, like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Because if you say yes, when you really mean no, you actually get pissed off at people. You talk shit about them. You gossip, You you get resentful. And that's mean anyway. So it's like you might as well just say no and honor your no to them, which is a yes for you. And so I think that's one of the things that we just get used to people pleasing and and saying yes to people so that they like us. And the second part is no one knows you. I mean, we talked about it before. You barely know you. You know, I don't know who I am. I'm still discovering. I never want to know who I am. People say advice. You should know who you are. It's the worst advice. You should never know who you are. I hope you are always discovering who you are by learning who you're not you know, if I know who I am, I'm ingrained in this, this identity I'm identifying. And so I'm not my hat. I'm not my, my podcast. I'm not my followers on Instagram. I'm not that like I'm so much more. And so I think if we don't know who we are and we're constantly trying to figure out who we're not, how the hell can someone outside of you judge you and know who you are? So I say for how to let go of caring so much what people think about you is like, let them be wrong about you. People will get you wrong because they don't know you. So they're judging a version of you that's not true. Can you let them be wrong? And can you be okay mm. with that? And it's like, cool. You get to think whatever you want to think about me. That says nothing about me. And Wayne Dyer says that, you know, it says everything about you. And that's not really who I am because I'm not even her anymore. I'm evolving and changing so quickly that you're not even going to catch up to who I'm becoming. And I don't care what you think. That's not true. So I just let them be wrong about me. I'm Byron Katie, who I got to interview on my podcast, who I look up to so much. She's like, be generous. Are you generous? Let people have whatever opinion about you they want to have. Be generous. And I was like, you know what? That's mm, awesome. That's you know, powerful. Yeah. It's like, I'm generous. You get to think whatever you want about me. Like you get to do that. Enjoy that. I'm over here creating my life, designing what I want to create in my life. And I'm generous about everyone. Everyone's going to think something, you know? And so. We have to pay attention to who we're being. And if I give you a tangible how to, where in your life have you not done what you wanted to do? And if you could sit down, and I love writing, I think writing is really powerful, especially in this digital world where we audio and voice record and use apps. I think a pen and a paper or a receipt or a napkin doesn't matter. Just writing down, you know, what do I really want to do that I'm scared to do? And why haven't I done it? And if you can follow the trail, Most times it's because of what someone or something or a person or a group will think about you society, your parents, your mom, your wife, your kids, how you will look to them. And right there, if you just identify that and go, wow, so I'm not going for that pay rise. I'm not going for the career or the business I want. I'm not buying a house in this neighborhood because I'm worried about what my dad's going to say or my mom's going to say or whoever, you know? And so, It's normal to care what people think about us. It's a part of our human brain and our evolution. I get it. But what's dysfunctional is when you allow it to stop you from actually creating what you want, from doing what you want. If it's stopping you from that, that needs attention.
0: Go nuts. Think what you want of me Mm. without caring. I think that is such amazing advice because all too often we're consumed with what other people think of us. We're consumed with the idea of us not being accepted, not being loved, not being thought in a certain light, a certain way. A distant cousin, maybe not too distant cousin to this idea of people-pleasing is this idea that we maybe most likely were in a place of not feeling adequate and we compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to somebody else. And I agree that we need to have those mentors and we need to have those people as you said, success leaves clues. At the same time, we can't compare our beginning to somebody else's end. Yeah. So wh- why do we play this comparison game all too often? And, and what can we be doing to redirect
1: that? I love JLo. And I had this quote in my high school yearbook, which I'm like, yes, Erica was intuitive. I was on it back then. So J-Lo said, the only person I'm in competition with is with myself. And I really love that because How can we not compare ourselves to others? How can we not worry about that and stay in our lane? And I feel like when you are fully happy, fully fulfilled, you go for your goals, you go for your dreams, you are too busy loving your life and creating your life to look to the side. And notice when you look to the side, what's happened? I love analogies, by the way. I have this analogy of the grass. And it's like you're on the fence looking at the neighbor's yard and staring at their fence watching their grass grow. Meanwhile, your tomatoes are dying and a dog shit in your yard and you're about to step in it and you don't even know cuz you haven't <laughs> you haven't attended your grass and you're just running across to the other yard looking at the other neighbor looking at the other neighbor and it's like, "Honey, my love, they're doing their thing. They're in their lane. They're buying their lawnmowers, Mercedes-Benz lawnmowers, they're growing organic tomatoes, they're loving life." And if you watch them like a TV show, then of course your life dies, like your grass is dead. So instead, I think when the person is on fire and happy and fulfilled, they don't even see that there's a garden next door. They don't even know that there's a fence to climb, to look over. So I try to, as much as I can, get so involved with my life and what I'm doing and the work and and the mission that I have because I'm passionate as hell. I don't even know about other people and what they do. So I think one of the things is if you are constantly looking over the fence and comparing yourself, and, and there's something that that I believe, I, don't, I wish I had Brene Brown's research team to get like research behind this, but I believe when we say I'm not good enough, it's correlated directly to comparison. Because if you think about it, I'm not good mm. enough, and every woman, Billy, I'm so sick of hearing someone say this, but I'm just not good enough. And I'm like, compared to who? And they're like, oh, no, not compared to anyone. I'm like, no, no, no. Who in your subconscious have you decided to compare yourself to? How many people? And again, we don't know this. So we we don't even know that this is happening. So I'm like, if you don't know this, if you haven't taken a pen and paper and went, I'm not good enough compared to Billy. Oh, wow. I didn't know I compared myself to Billy and his amazing setup and microphone. (laughs) You know, like, oh, shit. like Now I have some information and I can choose to not pretend like I don't know. And I can choose to follow that rabbit hole. And then I might find that when I was five years old, I felt insignificant. And Billy's amazing microphone setup and the way he always looks immaculate makes me feel less than because when I was five years old, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, Mm. oh, wow. Like, I mean, we just did it on this podcast together. Like we just discovered something that I didn't even know by talking about it. So I feel like it's powerful. And I feel like we get to, when we start doing this work, it's a rabbit hole. And I'm a fan of coaching. I, I did therapy for 19 years. And It made me a good communicator, but I didn't feel like therapy helped me. It doesn't mean it's not good for you. It could be good for you. Mm. I mean, for me, I just felt like we kept rehashing the past and it was an expensive rehashing of the past. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to talk about the now and talk about the future, the what I want to create for myself. And so we all have to do the work, whether you like to admit it or not. Nothing's wrong with you. You're a human on planet Earth that has experienced shit. And even if your life wasn't my life, you still have trauma. You still have experiences that are important, like someone making fun of you on the playground or an auntie discussing your weight at the dinner table. That's traumatic. <laughs> you know what I mean? It yeah. doesn't have to be you were kidnapped and your husband died and that's full on. I don't even believe that. That's such a crazy story. It doesn't have to be that crazy and elevated. It could just be the simple things that you don't feel like you're cool and you can't sit at the cool kids table in high school. And as a grown-up now, you don't feel relevant. You know that stuff? affects us. So we all have to decide to become aware of it if we want to, and then start unraveling what's in your head. I think that's the number one thing is journaling. It's free. You can do it on paper with a pen and just really start looking at your your head on paper and going, wow, that's the inventory of my mind right now. And Mm. the mind is going to be everything because that's where we all create from.
0: It's free and it's unlimited. Mm. And I love that you talk about, you know, the pen and the paper, there's all sorts of technology that exists, but there's something powerful about the pen and the paper. Comparison, as we talk about this, I'm, I'm thinking about how it only feeds our fear, insecurity, and doubt that a lot of us, probably all of us, not probably, yeah. definitely all of us have. And when we only, we, it's like adding fuel to the fire when we when we play that comparison game. Kind of round out here, this this amazing conversation. I want to talk about confidence, specifically the five C's. On the road to those five C's, One of the things that you're an advocate for and that you believe in wholeheartedly is this idea that your book says it all. Confidence feels like shit. You're uncomfortable, like you're uncomfortable. And you say playing it safe is the path of least resistance. And that you really suggest not playing it safe. Why is that?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, we have to get uncomfortable. How can we grow if we're not uncomfortable? So, you know, we know this world, the world of safety, the world of Things we always do, we know what that equals, we know what it creates for us when we want to do something really scary. And I call it like a skid mark moment, you know, you're just like, (laughs) Oh my god, I'm so nervous! Like, I think about a TED talk. You know, the fact that I want to do a TED talk already elevating, amazing, how exciting! Like, this is something new in my world that I can look to. Am I scared as hell? Of course, do I want to compare myself to all the amazing TED talks? Natural, imposter syndrome, natural, right? It's so, I think that when you're brave and courageous enough to live a life that you go for what you want, a life that's for you, your life, not anybody else's life, Billy's life, what Billy desires, when you're courageous and brave enough to live that life, you're going to feel discomfort, I would say 50% of the time. I would say half of your life is going to be discomfort. That's a lot. And so are we okay with being uncomfortable, being pushed, being stretched? How do you feel when you're in a space where you don't know what's going to happen or you don't have control? You know, control freaks, we hate this, right? Like, it's like, oh, I don't know about that. I want to, I want to be able to decide the whole thing. And it's like, no, we don't get the privilege of feeling safety and comfort when we're about to do something awesome and epic that we, that we've never done before. That's huge. And that we feel really big about as if it's going to feel, I mean, nothing that you have in your life has been easy That you. Appreciate and that you actually worked for. Nothing is easy, and so why do we think that creating confidence should be a walk in the park? You know, and so I mm. I, I say it feels like shit because it's the brave people that decide. You know what? I'm going to do something. I'm going to go for that thing. I'm going to go against the grain. I'm going to try doing the opposite of what everybody does, and I'm going to follow my heart. That is courageous as hell. You're scared the whole time. You're you have butterflies doing a dance party, and you're just like. I think this is wrong, but it feels right. And that's that feeling. So confidence feels like shit. It's like you're walking through the jungle of shit. There's monkeys and they're throwing poo at your face and you're getting, <laughs> you're getting scratched and thorns and it's messy as hell. It's so messy and the jungle of shit is what I'm gonna call it. And it's horrible and no one sees that. There's no cameras in there. There's no microphones in there. It's a hot mess and no one's allowed, just you. You're the only one with the point of view. And then you crawl onto the TED stage with poo on your face. And you're like, hi, everybody, I'm doing a TED talk. And they're like, Oh, my God, that was amazing. You are amazing. And I'm like, but did you see me five seconds ago, when I was down on the ground crying and a fucking monkey threw shit at my face? Did you see that? (laughs) No one saw that, you know, and so that's, that's the visual of of confidence. I feel like it's hard. And no one sees the hard, we only see the end result. Therefore, we compare ourselves to that but we all walk the same walk. We all feel self-doubt. No one gets to escape that. Like the people we believe in, the people we look up to, they're all going to doubt themselves. It's a part of the process.
0: What you say is is confidence is all about doing the scary shit. Yeah. And that safe is boring as fuck. Mm. And I love that just no holds barred, just like attitude because doing that scary stuff it's what builds confidence. And, and you know, I'm all about frameworks. So I want to talk about these five C's mm. that you mentioned in your book. Can you share what those are and why you've chosen those words specifically yeah, yeah. to help, help understand confidence?
1: So in the book, I talk about confidence as a practice. Like if anybody does yoga or meditation, it's a practice. So it's something we have to commit to continuously doing if we're going to get better at it and we're going to be perceived as air quotes confident. So I don't believe anyone is confident. I believe we're in a practice of it. And so I sat down with my husband one night and we're like, how do we explain how the most confident people in the world live their life? How do they create confidence? Because confidence is created. You know, you can't go on Amazon and buy confidence. You can't. It doesn't get delivered to your door. You don't reach Now I'm confident. I've done 17 hours of confidence study and now I'm confident. Like it never happened. So it doesn't exist that anyone is confident. Therefore, how do they create it? You're in a practice. And so after 10 years of researching women in this confidence space, I just looked at the things that we do and we're like, how do we put this into an actionable, tangible framework that anyone right now can do and check where they are in the five steps, the five C's of confidence. So the first one is choice. And choice is all about what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you not doing? What decisions are you making in your life? What decisions are you avoiding? We pick choice because it's a powerful word to decide that we have a choice. It's not made for you. It's like you can choose the big decision that you've been avoiding to quit your job, or you can choose what the logo is going to be on your new business. I mean, the logo to me, I feel these are the little choices we make that distract us from the scary shit that we really need to choose the scary stuff that we haven't messed around and decided. And so if you're here, if you're in this space of I want to practice confidence and I don't know what my choice is, I don't know what I need to do. I want you to think about what's a big decision that you've been avoiding. What's something that, you know, when you comb through the knots that you're like, Ah, I need to do that, but I'm too scared. Write that down. Like, this is the big choice, the big decision that I need to make. So number one, confident people make choices. They mess with the big decisions. They move through these. So that's number one. Number two is courage. And courage is hilarious because I feel like we think that courage is this lion and that we're so courageous and we're amazing. And it's like, I'm so courageous and strong and powerful. And to me, how I see courage is you're scared as hell and there's pee dripping down your leg. And you have skin marks and there's poo on your face and you're like, holy shit, is this the right thing? And you're in self-doubt massively and you're in the dark and you have to walk in the dark and you're like, holy shit, what if I fall down? Okay, well, I'll never know. Let me take a step. So to me, once you decide and you have this big choice that you know you need to make, you're going to sit in courage. You're going to sit in this, I'm scared. Is it normal? I want to tell you it's normal. I want to tell you that courage is about you being scared. Courage feels terrible. Courage feels like I'm unsure. So there's a big choice that you need to make. Now, number two, you got to muster up the courage. You don't get courage to be courageous. It's like you're sitting in this unknown. So number two is courage. I feel like we need to move through this pee dripping down the leg, scared as hell moment. You're on track. So if that's you, high five, keep moving. Number three is create. So confident people create. So this word is not called action on purpose because action is just just do, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. I think we're in this hustle mentality where we do so much. And some of the stuff we do is Mm -hmm. kind of productive. It doesn't help us. It burns us out, right? So confident people create. Creation is about taking one tiny, tiny, tiny small step towards that big choice, that big decision that you made in your life. So you're gonna quit your job. Maybe your next step is mustering up the courage to look for a new job to look at your values and what you actually want to do to tell your partner, Hey, I don't want to work here anymore. That's one step towards you leaving your job. Now you're not leaving your job yet, but if you don't tell your partner that that's what you want to do, they're not going to be on your side that therefore you're not going to get the support you need, et cetera, et cetera. So create, sometimes you don't have a clear action plan as to what to do. You don't have a do this now do that. And you have to create it. You have to find a way you have to create opportunity You have to create a new way for you to move through. So I love the word create because it's about taking aligned action Mm. instead of just a bunch of action in the wrong. I mean, one little step aligned or 10 things that you do that are exhausting and burnout won't get you what you want. So aligned action, create. Number four is consider. And it's good old evaluate. Basically, you took an action. You did a thing. You took a small step. How was it? And this is a a place where a lot of people, and I think they've made it cool, the word fail, like fail forward, fail fast. I'm so funny about words, Billy. Like I think that if we identify with maybe you took a step and step three was create, you did something and it wasn't good. It wasn't a great result. So most people would say you failed. But if I hear the word failed, I think I failed. Therefore, I'm a failure. It doesn't make me want to go again. And words are everything. Like Wayne says, language is land gauge. Like it gauges where you are. So your language is huge. So I say number four is about considering how did that action step that you took go? Was it good? Fantastic. Was it <laughs> shit? Fantastic. So instead, of, instead of failing, consider learn. I learned that that man from Australia that I met wasn't a good man, and I learned the second man wasn't a good man. So now. I was able to learn what I did so that I don't do it again. And then I attracted Hamish and he was amazing. So if if we're not paying attention to the action that we're taking and we're not evaluating and considering, did I fail? Was that a fail or did I actually learn something? And if it was good, what was good about it? Pay attention to what is good about the things you're doing. Pay attention to the lessons when it's not good and you don't get what you want. And then number five is continue. And continue is all about you have to continuously get up. What happens in the practice of confidence in number one choice overwhelm, procrastination station? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I could do so many decisions. Ah, I'm like, fucking choose one. You can't be wrong when you choose one. Number two, I'm scared as hell. So we sit in courage, air quotes, but it's not courage. You're just sitting in this, in this fear. Fear comes in number two, in, in this fearful space of I'm not doing anything. So I'm like, move to number three, take a small action. What happens when you take that action and it goes bad? Number four, you fail you fall flat on your ass and you don't get back up. And it takes three months, six months, 10 months for you to do something. And the longer the gap between number four and number five, it's like a crowbar into your Mm. practice of confidence. Now you definitely don't identify as confident. So you fall down, you failed, or you learned. The next thing is get back up. Number five is about continue, commit back to that practice. What's the next choice you need to make? All right, let's get the courage, another action. What happens in the practice of confidence is number two, courage, and number five, uh, continue become like the pushing wheel. They become the wind beneath you to keep you moving. So really, you're just making choices, taking action, creating action, considering how you went and doing it again. How was that? Not good. Okay, let's try again. So it keeps you in this whirlwind of this practice. And the most confident people you know, they're in the practice. They didn't fall down and step four and never get back up. You're going to fall. It's not Or if you fall, it's when you fall. That's right. Can you get your ass back up, you know? And so I just now do it so quickly that I'm in the practice. This is how I live my life. I don't, I don't think I'm not confident or I am confident. I'm just committed to practicing and going for it constantly.
0: I love that you're using practice and then that framework to be the glue that holds all of this together. Because as you said, if you think about it from like a binary, you either are or you're not confident. I think that's misleading and not true. I think you are in a constant state of practicing your confidence. I'm fascinated by this idea of confidence, and I'm so glad that you have taken your approach to your business, to your mission, to everything that you do to help people practice confidence. If if you're listening right now and you want more information from this incredible human being who's shared so, so, so much with us today, first, go check out this book, Confidence feels like shit. I'm telling you right now, this will, is a game changer. Much like Wayne Dyer changed your life, Erica, you're changing other people's lives. You also have recently hit a huge milestone with your podcast, over a million downloads, The Confidence Chronicles. Love that. And We celebrated that on Clubhouse. Also, thequeenofconfidence.com. Yeah. You can find an information. And then, of course, you have The Sisterhood. Tell us about The Sisterhood and tell us anywhere else that people can find you would love to have you share that now.
1: Thank you, Billy. Thank you so much. Yeah, so the Sisterhood is my year-long coaching experience. And it's a group of women around the world. We've got like 400 women in 19 countries who have come through that program. And it is an experience of coaching. So if someone is looking to work on their mindset, if they're looking to create what they want, then this is that program. It is an active experience. I coach in their live probably two hours a month. We have a beautiful connected community and we move through these main areas modules if you will of it so we've got a australia community so we have live events and then we've got an online community for the women who can't be in the room live with us and so we move through managing the mind which as you can already tell i'm so passionate about that that's one of the biggest things i think we need to do if we want to change our lives that's why you have a whole chapter on mindset (laughs) i mean that's
0: that's it all starts it starts there right oh my
1: god yes it honestly, I hate to say, like, oh, mindset, because it's such like a self love. It's such yeah, a, right, you right, know, these right. words. They become cliche. They become true, cliche, but I they know. they
0: become cliche for a reason. But yeah, I know. I'm I'm so with you. Yeah. I mean, if all we did <laughs> you know was focus I mean. on mindset, yeah. everything else comes to, Like that is the cornerstone.
1: Hundred percent. It really is like how we think, how we think and how we think creates how we feel, which creates what action we take, which creates our results. If that's not fucking everything, I'm like, don't worry about getting growing a business. If you're not, if that's not right, it's going to affect everything. So we talk about managing the mind. There's a whole thing about FWOT, which stands for. Fuck what others think or forget what others think. If you want to teach it to your <laughs> toddlers, <laughs> FWOT, we, we go through ego and like how our ego gets in the way and alter she go, like creating the queen of confidence is my alter shigo. She's not who I am. It's who I aspire to be. I aspire to be the queen of confidence. Like she's who I look up to and I hope that I can be her every day. So we help I women create an altered self, I you know, of that. themselves. Yeah. And we go through self-love and worthiness. That's a massive topic for women, you know, and it's a huge for me as well. So I love talking about that. We go through relationships. My husband comes in and, and helps us with that. So we can understand how to have communication better, how to collaborate and deal with confrontation. And then lastly, we talk about money and manifesting. Only because money is such a big thing for us and, and the women I serve, we have really bad mm-hmm. money beliefs. We don't think that we can create money and manifesting from a space of Tangible, not that I'm not spiritual, you know, it's not a spiritual program. It's very like actionable stuff. We do attract. And so, how are we attracting? What are we attracting? And how can we attract better? So, the sisterhood covers all of that. And it's a year long, and I love it and I'm obsessed with it. And that's more life coaching, working on you. And then we've just launched a business sisterhood, I guess, if you will, called Scale Squad. And that is a group of women. It's a smaller group and it's a group of women who want to grow their businesses and get their mission and vision out into the world with zero from starting from nothing, which is what happened for us. We started from nothing and we built this community and this business in two and a half years. we made over a million dollars in our business. We've got women from all over the world, podcast, all of that. And Everything was from Instagram, you know, or, or a social media community. And so I'm happy that we get to do that because I'm big about teaching women, especially women who, like me, identified as broken or damaged or not smart. You know, one of my shitty beliefs that still comes, by the way, is I'm just a stupid Spanish girl. Mm. Like that, that comes when I'm really leveling up and I'm going to do something big, like speak to a massive group of women that I perceive them as professional white women. And I'm just a stupid Spanish girl that comes in and I know it's coming to level me up. I'm like, oh, hello, old belief. What are you doing here? Oh, nothing. I'm just coming to show you that, you know, this is a scary, awesome moment for you. And I go, thank you so much. Get into the back, put your seatbelt on, but you're not driving. You know, like I don't let it drive me, but it still comes. So that project that we're doing, the skill squad has been amazing because women have been building their businesses, making money, changing the world. And I think more money, more impact. You know, it's not more money, more problems. It's more money, more impact, more ability to help. So that is something that I'm super passionate about. It's not a big program on purpose because I want to really be strategic with who we have and be able to pour into these women and their business. And that's what I do and I hang out on Instagram all the time. <laughs> so come
0: say hi. Yes, you you are a legend on Instagram. So definitely give us your is it it's just the queen of confidence is is that the, that's the handle for yes. for all uh, to find you on social media. Everything. And I love that you talk about I don't know if you use the, you say it in this way but OSB, old shitty beliefs and being able to identify those OSBs and when they pop into our lives, recognize them for what they are and and know that they actually They serve you if you allow them to serve you because it's telling you something and instead of letting it affect you in a negative way. And so Erica, Mm. you've lit the world on fire with everything that you do. And today is no different. Thank you so, so, so much. I would love to give you the last Mm. word for anybody listening right now. What would you say to them and share with them to help them on their journey to practice confidence and to make it a a more intimate part of their life and and feel free to take this any direction you want for the final thought.
1: Well, firstly, I want to say thank you to you and I want to honor you for the work that you do and who you are in the world. I've never met you in person, but honestly, I feel so connected to you just from meeting you on Clubhouse and speaking to you a few times here. And I just want to honor you and thank you for your heart and for your care and your desire and the work that you do. I just think you're such an incredible, beautiful human being. So thank you for being you. you. Like, honestly, you're You're a beautiful soul of a person. Like it's my honor to know you. My last thing to those of you listening to this, I would say, you know, if you want something, you have to go and create it and you get to go and create it. It's part of your birthright. It's part of the human experience. You know, your past does not have to equal your future. And it's not about what's happened for you, it's about what you decide to make it mean and what you decide to do from now on. So if you're breathing, if you have a pulse and you've made it this far and you've been through all the things you've been through, like you've already moved through the hard stuff or maybe you're moving through the hard stuff right now. You get to decide in this moment, the kind of life that you wanna have. And it does not have to identify with what, what you've done or what you've been through. None of that defines you. If you wanna create something, just know it's gonna feel hard. It's gonna feel difficult. It's gonna push you, but trust that you are strong and you are resilient and that everything that happens for you is building you up to the life that you said you wanted to have. You said you wanted the goals and the dreams and the life that you wanted, and it's supposed to happen. Trust that everything happening is supposed to happen this way because of who you're going to become and what you're going to do, whether big or small, whether Oprah legacy or not, it doesn't matter. But you have a choice here. It, It is not happening to you. It's happening for you. You have a choice. Please work on yourself because it makes the world a better place. And if you're a parent, let me go ahead and sucker punch you right now. Your children will not listen to what you say. They will model what you do. They will model who you're being. So do not think that telling them to be more confident, yet you look in the mirror and you hate yourself. Mm. They see that. They feel that. So you have a responsibility directly because you had a human, a little mini human to work on yourself so that you can be the example of what's possible for your child or the children around you. So it's not going to feel good. It's going to feel like shit. If it feels like shit, high five, you're on the right track. Just keep moving.
0: Love, love, love it. Make the choice. Have the courage. Don't be afraid to create what you're meant to create and consider and Mm. continue. And don't worry if it feels like shit, you're doing something (laughs) right. Erica Kramer, thanks for being on Inside Out.
1: Thank you, Billy.